Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. We were visited here last week by the American president, and I'd like to say two things about his visit, both of which can be interpreted as negative. First of all, he has said that he he supports a two-state resolution based on the pre-1967 lines with mutual land swaps. He said this at a joint press conference with the Palestinian president on Friday in Bethlehem. He did not cede to Abbas' request to unilaterally recognize a Palestinian state However, he spoke of a future Palestinian state. He said, and I quote, two states along the 1967 lines with mutually agreed swaps remains the best way to achieve equal measures of security, prosperity, freedom, and democracy for the Palestinians as well as the Israelis. The Palestinian people deserve a state of their own that is independent, sovereign, viable, and continuous. I think he meant contiguous, but that's how the speech was written for him. Now, we're talking about a Palestinian authority, which is essentially a terrorist regime that pays people to kill Jews. And therefore, everything that he said makes no sense. But I don't hold him to blame because he simply reads what was written for him by his handlers. He is obviously not in full control of his facilities. He's weak and uh, he looks confused. So whoever wrote his speech is responsible for what he said. And what was written in his speech makes no sense whatsoever. As long as the Palestinian Authority is nothing more than a terrorist entity, there will be no two-state solution. He said that the time is not ripe at this moment to restart negotiations, which is the only thing he said that made sense. Biden was here for a three-day visit, and what he said fell far short of what the Palestinians demanded which included the resumption of peace talks, unilateral immediate recognition of a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. But the, one of the things that really stood out different uh, in his speech, what is different from this previous pre- uh, president, Donald Trump said, uh, when his visit, he did visit Bethlehem in 2017, He didn't even mention the words two states in his um, address, his address. Biden, unlike any of his predecessors since the 1993 Oslo Accords, has not pushed forward an Israeli-Palestinian process. Uh, Trump spoke of the deal of the century, but that, of course, didn't come about. 
And uh, furthermore, spoke, uh, Trump spoke of a deal um, that gave Israel 30% of the West Bank and the Palestinians only a small fraction of East Jerusalem. But Biden, on the other hand, restored the two-state concept based on the pre-1967 lines, which had also been the policy of the Obama administration in which Biden was the vice president. So he just essentially repeated the same ridiculous stuff far from reality that was said during the Obama administration. The only thing positive I can think about um, the president's speech was that uh, Abbas spoke and he urged the United States to unilaterally recognize the state of Palestine. And uh, Biden didn't say anything about that, probably because it wasn't in his notes. Anyhow, that is, uh, he talked about a two-state solution, and which we know is simply makes no sense. So that's the first thing which I think uh, we can say about Biden's trip. He read from the script, the script is unre- unrelated to reality, and that's the bottom line. So uh, that is item number one uh, of my comment about Biden's trip. Item number two, uh, which didn't get into the headlines, but I think is much more serious. With all the pomp and circumstance of a U.S. visit, there is one element that didn't receive much attention. Without saying a word about it, Biden made a change from what his predecessors do when they visit Israel's capital. As with all diplomatic visits, most of the action took place in Jerusalem, which Prime Minister Yair Lapid and President Isaac Herzog made sure to repeatedly refer to Jerusalem as Israel's eternal capital. They didn't call call Jerusalem Israel's undivided capital, as their predecessors often did, which is just as well, because Biden seemed determined to divide the city, if not in his words, then his actions and policies. And what do I mean by that? This is the part that really I find galling. Now, the previous administration, the Trump administration, came when it talked about a recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, it came without specific municipal borders, but it downgraded the Palestinians in the city because Trump closed the consulate and subordinated it to the new U.S.-Israel embassy in Jerusalem, which is not far from where I live. Part of the staff continues to work in the building on Agron Street in Western Jerusalem, uh, the, uh, which is just up the block from the Waldorf Astoria where Biden held the press conference. Now, the Biden administration has been trying to reopen the consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem for the past year, but Israel has refused to allow it on the grounds that Jerusalem is the capital of only one nation. 
So in lieu of reopening the consulate, the U.S. State Department upgraded it from Palestinian Affairs Unit to U.S. Office of Palestinian Affairs, which answers directly to Washington. So for that matter, it means they still get a certain recognition of the Palestinians in Jerusalem, but not a serious one. Now, what happened was, weeks before Biden came to Israel, word of his plan to visit a Palestinian hospital in East Jerusalem made a lot of waves in Israel because Biden did not want any Israelis to accompany him on that trip to visit a Palestinian hospital in Jerusalem. On Friday, when Biden's limousine drove up to the Arab hospital in East Jerusalem, it's called the Augusta Victoria, it was festooned with two American flags. In contrast, when the president drove around Jerusalem, the, the, it, all the president's cars had two flags. It had on one, on one, uh, in the front on one side, it had a uh, American flag, and the other sported an Israeli flag. However, when they went to uh, East Jerusalem to visit the uh, Palestinian hospital, there was no. Uh, there were two American flags on the front uh, fenders, so. Biden's refusal to allow Israelis to visit with him, along with his change of flags, signaled that he does not recognize Israeli sovereignty or Israeli authority in that part of Jerusalem. Now, soon after, when the White House released a statement about Biden's meeting with uh, the head of the Palestinian Authority, they said that he reiterated the U.S. position that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and that it continues to be the policy of the United States that the specific boundaries of Jerusalem must be resolved through final status negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So whether Biden admits it or not, he also denied it when he asked, was asked directly at a press conference. He made it clear what the U.S. thinks the municipal boundaries Jerusalem should be by not allowing Israelis or an Israeli flag when he visited Augusta Victoria. And no Israelis were with him, and they removed the Israeli flag from his car. Now, the... Uh, it's interesting, by the way, the hospital, the Palestinian, the Arab hospital uh, that he visited is near the Mount of Olives, which has been a Jewish cemetery for 3,000 years and is still in use. People are still being buried there. The Mount overlooks the old city of Jerusalem, home to two Jewish temples, Jerusalem is still and will always be the historic and present capital of Jewish people and therefore the capital of the Jewish state, although Biden went there with no Israeli flags on his car. Now, it, the uh, a lot of people took issue with, with, that, with that fact, 
And uh, not only did he not have an Israeli flag, but no Israeli officials accompanied him on his visit to the hospital. So the religious Zionist party, um, one of the members named Orit Strzok said, and I quote, Biden's visit to East Jerusalem without official Israeli accompaniment is a destructive move, move toward Israel, even if it was done with smiles and handshakes. Biden knows very well that would never be allowed in Washington by a foreign leader and understands how much that hurts Israel's national pride doing that in Jerusalem, not including an Israeli flag nor any officials with him. This rejection was seen by many people in Israel as signaling that he, Biden, does not recognize Israeli sovereignty in that part of Jerusalem. On the other hand, when he was asked at a press conference whether it's how the situation understood, he said no. In the White House statement about his meeting with the head of the Palestinian Authority, uh, he officially said President Biden reiterated the U.S. position of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and it continues to be the policy of the United States that the specific boundaries of Jerusalem must be resolved through final status negotiation between Israelis and Palestinians. So what, what he's really saying is rather subtle. What he's saying is Jerusalem is indeed Israel's capital, but the city of Jerusalem and its boundaries are really not defined. So therefore, it is possible for the, the, the boundaries of Jerusalem to be defined in such a way that part of it belongs to the Palestinian Authority, which is rather a subtle point. The uh, So the very fact that the, his car had two American flags on it, apparently signified that he doesn't want to make a statement as to whether the site in Mount of Olives is Israeli or Palestinian. The, by the way, when he, he met uh, and he went to Bethlehem, he had two flags on his car, one an American flag and the other a Palestinian flag. So... The uh, essentially uh, what happened was it was clear that Biden, the first sitting U.S. president to visit the Palestinian Authority institutions in East Jerusalem, was signaling that Israel's sovereignty in Jerusalem was in question. The pictures of his limousine on its way to East Jerusalem without the Israeli flag that's been flying until now highlights the message he's trying to send that the sovereignty of Jerusalem, Israel's capital, is on the table for negotiation. That's what it really means. One of the uh, leaders of the Likud party said, put out a statement that what, what the president did by not including the Israeli flag and including a Palestinian flag, only spreads false hopes and sows discord instead of peace, just as no leader would request that Washington, for example, or um, any other capital city would allow uh, cars to move around without the flag of any world capital uh, would not allow what happened here in Jerusalem.
to have a, a flag on the president's car of a really of a, a non-existent entity. Palestinian Authority is just a terrorist group, and it's not a, a city or anything. The Trump administration recognized Israel. His capital is Jerusalem back in 2018 without delineating municipal borders. So Biden did say he would maintain that recognition. The, uh, by the way, the Biden administration also tried to reopen the U.S. consulate to the Palestinians, which was located in western Jerusalem. It was turned into a unit of the U.S. embassy in Israel by uh, Trump. Uh, but, um, however, Israel has refused to authorize the move. In other words, Biden said and did things here that it essentially were attack on Israeli sovereignty in the city of Jerusalem. So after smiles and all the handshakes and everything else, Biden essentially said that Jerusalem is not Israel's capital. Or or to put it differently, maybe Jerusalem is Israel's capital, but only part of Jerusalem. The, the border of Jerusalem has not yet been defined. And, and according to Biden's thinking, part of Jerusalem can become the capital of a terrorist state under the Palestinian Authority. So that was the part of his uh, visit that was under the headlines, but I think it was very meaningful. And the truth of the matter is, uh, I I don't hold uh, Biden responsible for anything anti-Israel. Biden, who's obviously uh, suffering uh, from old age, and uh, he reads what is placed before him, and uh, therefore, whoever it was who put those notes in his pocket or put that speech on the lectern in front of him is responsible for his not giving full recognition to the state of Israel in its capital. And that's not right. By the way, apropos to Jerusalem, uh, New York Representative Lee Zeldin introduced a resolution joined by 22 of his fellow House Republicans opposing President Joe Biden's proposal to reopen a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem for the Palestinians. The the administration's proposal, according to the congressman, would violate the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 and reward the Palestinian Authority despite its continued efforts to serve as an obstacle to peace in the region. Palestinian Authority has made it abundantly clear that its push for separate diplomatic outreach from the United States is for the purpose of dividing Jerusalem, which the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 was crafted to prevent the law states that Jerusalem should be recognized as the capital of Israel and remains undivided. So the Congress is upset by what the president did, and uh, they're upset with the Biden administration. They they call it a unilateral concession to a Palestinian authority, and and the Palestinian authorities are simply a terrorist group. So the uh, any plan to challenge the status of Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty is 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 something the U.S. government could not accept because the the, the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 was crafted, as I said, to prevent any other any other entity 
calling Jerusalem its capital. So that the bottom line is that, that Biden did something stupid, but perhaps he thinks we're going to change the borders of Jerusalem, but it left a bad taste after his visit. Also, his yelling about a two-state solution, which is certainly unreasonable. So I guess we can forgive him because it looks like he's partially senile, but it's not a good position for the American government. I think uh, the listeners know that I look for items that are under the headlines. It's very difficult when you have a program that's uh, only uh, is heard once a week. And it's very difficult to follow continuous big stories that are in the news every day. So I look for items that uh, are under the headlines, under the radar, I call them, because I think they are are of interest to uh, the Jewish communities, both here in Israel and abroad. And uh, so I make it make an effort always to find these strange items but if they're too strange, they won't be of interest. So I, it, every week, uh, I spend a lot of time looking for things that are under the radar, but not so far under the radar that nobody would be interested in them. So I have to make these choices. And I came across an item this week that I want to share with the listeners because it, it really came as a surprise to me. It has to do with anti-Semitism in New Zealand, of all places. A Jewish organization in New Zealand has reported a rise in the country's online anti-Semitism. What happened is that this Jewish organization collated content from New Zealand users and platforms over the past year and says that there's a risk it will cause real-world harm. Now, what is it about? The New New Zealand Jewish Council representatives said that many of the comments online referred to the Holocaust, uh, and they praised Hitler, and they uh, put swastikas and caricatures straight out of Nazi propaganda. Now, what do most New Zealanders really think about the Jews? Now, first of all, it's interesting. I've been to New Zealand been to synagogues in New Zealand. Uh, What is the Jewish population? Well, I don't know the exact population, but according to the statistics, the Jews make up 0.2% of New Zealanders. So uh, one of the questions that was asked in a survey uh, was if New Zealanders even know a Jew personally. So what happened in this survey, a little over a thousand people over the age of 18 were questioned, and they had 18 internationally recognized statements presented to these people to measure the level of their anti-Semitic views. By the way, I found that very interesting that there's an internationally recognized statement about anti-Semitism. For the purpose of the survey, the uh, anti-Semitism was defined in accordance with the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition. That's known now as the IHRA working definition, 
and it has been adopted by many countries and also by many uh, states in the United States. So what happened was they did a survey of anti-Semitism in New Zealand in 2021 to figure out how much anti-Semitic sentiment there is. Uh, the um, And the, the question they asked was whether these uh, anti-Semitic sentiments were influenced to a greater or lesser degree by one of the, a form of anti-Semitism. It turns out, I found this very interesting, there are uh, four forms of anti-Semitism, believe it or not. First is classical anti-Semitism, which has a deep historical basis in religious discrimination and victimization. That's one, classic anti-Semitism. The second is the right-wing and nationalistic anti-Semitism, which is based on racial theory, such as white supremacy, and it involves a variety of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Now, the third level of anti-Semitism is the jihad-induced anti-Semitism. I guess the, the very title, jihad-induced, that speaks for itself. And finally, the last um, category is left-wing anti-Semitism, which has emerged more recently, and it's often manifests itself by something now called Zionophobia, hatred for the idea of a homeland for the Jewish people. I have to admit, I never heard of Zionophobia before, but here it is. Now, Although one negative view doesn't identify the core values of an individual, the survey reported that a significant number hold multiple negative views of the Jews. And for the, the people who did the survey, this is rather concerning. 21% of New, Zealand's, New Zealanders had two or more classical anti-Semitic views of the Jews. 25% held two or more xenophobic views. The survey found a clear correlation between those holding xenophobic views and those who hold classical anti-Semitic views. So if a person believes in either xenophobia or classical anti-Semitism, they will undoubtedly latch on to other forms of anti-Semitism as well. Now, in general, 63 of those who surveyed agree with at least one anti-Semitic view, and 6% six, uh, agreed with 9 or more out of 10. So there's only a 25% chance that someone who holds four classical anti-Semitic views will hold neither anti-Israel nor anti-Semitic ones. There's only a 29% chance that someone who holds four anti-Semitic views will hold no classical ones. This is consistent with the United Kingdom study that also showed a clear empirical link between the various forms of anti-Semitism. It's hard for me, by the way, as I'm reading these numbers to the listeners, it's, it's hard for me to really understand how much time was spent on dividing up various forms of anti-Semitism and things of that nature. 
Now, what the interesting thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that many New Zealanders do not admit to having an opinion on Israel. Of those who do, most respect the view that Israel has the right to exist as a majority Jewish state, and don't they do not support trade boycotts. However, Nazi, apartheid, and mass murder uh, theories have much been more pervasive. The... Uh, and they also divided up the anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist views according to the voters of the various political parties uh, in uh, New Zealand. And uh, what's happened is, according to the people who did the survey, is the recent global emergence of left-wing associated anti-Semitism create, creates a particular paradox. While most forms of discrimination are unacceptable in progressive thinking, anti-Semitism does not seem to count as racism because Jews can be accused of white privilege. Now, it's interesting because Jews come in all colors. Many Jews come to Levant, come from uh, Oriental countries, come from North Africa. I don't know if they can be called white Jews, but a lot of the people who don't like Jews accuse them of white privilege. So Jews are often of color, which is sort of doesn't make sense. The uh, There's a significant proportion of New Zealanders holding anti-Semitic views, but there's also a lot of people who like Jews. A surprising result with almost a third said they knew a Jewish person. Only a third of the people questioned, representing the general New Zealand population, only a third said they knew a Jewish person. Now, this compares with 88% of New Zealanders who know an Asian person, almost half who know a Muslim, and just over a quarter who knew a, who knew a Buddhist. The... Uh, uh, further into the survey, only 42% of those questioned could correctly identify the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust, and about 17% they said they knew virtually nothing about the Holocaust. So, uh, so it's interesting. Uh, they, a recent survey was done by the uh, Auckland Holocaust Memorial Trust which found that only 43% of New Zealanders knew 6 million Jews were killed during World War II. So they drew the, um, the, the people who made the survey drew the conclusion that uh, Holocaust education is important in New Zealand. So here we have in New Zealand, which has a Jewish community, 0.2% of New Zealanders uh, apparently, there is a significant amount of anti-Semitism. So it seems you don't need Jews to have anti-Semitism. So um, I'm not the not quite I'm not quite sure what other conclusion one should come to from the survey. Now I'm going to change the subject really completely and share a little bit of information about what's happening in tr public transportation in Israel. <clears throat> There's a thing in the Knesset called the Metro Bill. 
The traffic jams that afflict greater Tel Aviv have become one of Israel's most acute problems. Uh, you go to Tel Aviv, the traffic is absolutely unbelievable. So to address the, the cause of this chronic congestion, the government decided to turn words into policy, and after years of promises, they launched the largest infrastructure project in the history of Israel. It's going to cost 200 billion Israeli shekels. While it is true that many European cities have operated metro railways since the late 19th and early 20th century, Israel's large cities still lack underground mass transportation system. So the project that they want to do in Tel Aviv is really historic. The planned metro project stretches across the whole of what's called the Dan region, D-A-N, which is from Rehovot in the south to Hod HaSharon in the north. And if you look at the map, that is the a major population, the major population area in Israel. And it's designed to offer a real solution to the chronic problem of traffic, as it, it, it also offers a solution to housing and employment issues. The, project, the projected benefits from this national project are estimated to, to surpass 420 billion Israeli shekels and some 25 billion shekels per year. And they're trying to push this through the Knesset because what it means if, if the project is undertaken and it's finished in five or six years, it'll make a huge difference for, the, for all of Israel, not only for the people living in the Tel Aviv area, which is really difficult to, to go through now because of the traffic. When I have, I live in Jerusalem, whenever I have occasion to go to Tel Aviv, I take the train. It's a little over than a half hour and I have no parking problems. But for people who go in by, uh, by uh, automobile, and I can see uh, from the, uh, the railroad train rides along highway number one, which is the main highway from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. And as we approach in particular Tel Aviv, uh, the traffic is unbelievable. And generally, during rush hour, the traffic is at a standstill most of the time. So the the thank when I first came to Israel, very few people had automobiles. I remember I uh, I was working in a laboratory, and one of the technicians told me he could never hope to own an automobile. That's how rare they were. And today, everyone has a car, and it seems like everybody's out on the road with their car. And the, the clogging in Tel Aviv is really a nightmare. So hopefully this bill will be passed, and within five or six years, we'll have a solution to this really bad problem. Now I'm going to switch topics again as part of the uh, under-the-radar part of the program and talk about something totally different. There was a landmark decision, a ruling last week by a regional court in the city of Lud, which is near the airport. They determined that remote civil marriage will be recognized in Israel. 
remote meaning do you get married by Zoom? Now, the case on hand related to a couple in Israel who had a civil marriage ceremony in Utah, but it was done over Zoom. So these video weddings have become more common as the world has found ways to manage this global pandemic. And apparently, uh, this method of getting married by Zoom has been used more and more by Israelis during the past few years when the air travel was very limited. Uh, people used to run off, get on a plane within an hour, they were in Cyprus, and they could get married civilly and then come back to Israel. Uh, for decades, Israel has maintained the facade of no civil marriage in Israel, while accepting civil unions performed abroad for registration purposes. In other words, if you wanted to get married in Israel, you had to get married uh, religiously, either through a rabbi or a Christian clergyman or a uh, Muslim clergyman. Uh, and, uh, but if you uh, were married outside the country, and you came to Israel, you were married in a civil uh, marriage, you would be registered in Israel. So this was sort of a technical sleight of hand. So that's how the Israel has chosen to finesse the pro problematic fact that marriage in Israel is controlled exclusively by the religious institutions. So the uh, a lot of... Israelis, particularly those who uh, came from Russia, actually hundreds of thousands of Israelis are not eligible to marry at all because they are not identified as belonging to any religion. This is particularly true of the thousands who came from the Soviet Union. The uh, So uh, Civil marriage till now is only a, a plane ticket away to Cyprus. Now, as of last week's court decision, it seems that couples can attend their ceremony abroad through Zoom and attain a valid civil marriage license without leaving the country. So, uh, the, the, uh, if you will, the fact that you can get married on Zoom in Utah while sitting in Israel pretty much highlights the absurd laws of marriage here in Israel. The rules governing marriage in Israel date back to the Ottoman Empire, and in a modern democracy, it's a little bit bizarre. For example, the British Empire instated civil marriage in 1836, France following the French Revolution in uh, stated civil marriage in 1792, and Germany in 1875. So while we are well at home in our standard in many Middle Eastern countries, it's not something Israel should be proud of that we still haven't modernized weddings, or I should say registration for weddings. So... That's the situation now in Israel. There are some organizations trying to fight this. There's a, a very, people want more religious freedom in Israel. And that, many people marry privately every year following their own standards. That's what it really is. So uh, 
The stranglehold by religious institutions on marriage is apparently becoming loosened big time, and uh, things are going to be changed very much within the next few years. So uh, thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. I go back to Jay Shapiro. Uh, in this portion of the program, I want to touch upon a number of items. They are not related to each other. Uh, some of them are under the radar. You won't see them. Maybe uh, if they appear in the newspaper, it'll be one of the back pages. But I think it's important for the listeners to know about them. The items are not related, so I'll start with the first one. Uh, President Biden visited here a week ago, and there were no public statements during the president's visit against either Jewish building in East Jerusalem or West Bank settlement construction. The subject was not touched upon. The Biden administration, however, has repeatedly stated its disapproval of such projects and has asked Israel to hold any plans. So to avoid friction, Israel briefly delayed but did not suspend building plans for Jewish projects in East Jerusalem and settler homes in what they call the West Bank. The Interior Ministry's District Planning Committee for Jerusalem is due to discuss two plans at the end of July for new Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem involving 2,000 homes. The Lower Aqueduct Plan, that's what one of the plans is called, would allow for 1,446 new housing units close to the Jewish neighborhood of Har Choma, which is down in the southern part of the city, right close to Bethlehem. At the Giva HaSheket plan for 473 Jewish housing units would be located near, near the Palestinian neighborhoods of Shuafat and Beit Safafa. In the West Bank, the civil administration set September 12th as the date to hear objections against 3,412 settler homes in the unbuilt section of the Male Adumim settlement, which is east of uh, Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea, and the area is known as E1. So that's as far as Jewish building continuing in Jerusalem. Another thing that Biden announced was a multi-year pledge of $100 million for the East Jerusalem Hospital Network that serves Palestinians. 
He spoke of this both during his visit to the Augusta Victoria Hospital, and he spoke about it again in Bethlehem a day later. No specific details were given as to the allocation of the funds. Uh, Biden, however, noted that in the past, the United States has provided that hospital with $85 million since 2014. So the donation appears to be an increase in current funding levels, particularly when taking into account that there are matching pledges from Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Emirates. So that'll get another $100 million for the, for the Palestinian hospital. By the way, I don't know um, if, if Biden had to clear this with the U.S. Congress or not, but he made the pledge. Now, separately, the White House announced $2.1 million for the Paris Peace Center and $3 million for something called Apple Seeds, a program that brings together young Israeli and Palestinian professionals on issues of technology and leadership. These two grants are part of a $250 million set aside for joint Israel-Palestinian projects. The U.S. has pledged $15 million to help provide food for over 200,000 low-income Palestinians, particularly in light of rising food prices due to the war in Ukraine. Funding will be provided through the U.N. World Food Program and other non-governmental organizations. In other words, the, the American president, when he was here, did a lot of promising of U.S. money for the Palestinians. I didn't see anything about changing the Palestinian education system such that they won't be taught from pre-kindergarten to hate Jews and to believe that Israel should be destroyed. None of that was mentioned. Also, the... Um, there's a pledge of uh, $200 million for the United Nations Relief and Work Agency for Palestinian refugees. Uh, th that is an organization, UNRWA, which takes care of the Palestinians. That's an organization that many people say should be done away with because it's only prolonging the refugee situation. Uh, the um, the uh, the it's pretty magnanimous of Biden announcing all this when he had a news conference with Bethlehem. Prior to the Trump administration, the United States had provided the largest donations to UNRWA on the annual basis made by any sing single country. The U.S. US donates $364 million to UNRWA and uh, the, uh, the under the Trump administration, they halted these uh, annual donations, and now Biden has resumed that funding. The, uh, the, the White House said that Biden's pledge would bring the total of U.S. financial assistance to UNRWA to $618 million of the American taxpayers' money. This effectively means that with Biden's announcement, the U.S. has promised to provide almost $300 million this year, and, uh, and that's a lot of money.
The other thing was, while Biden was here, uh, Israel approved an additional 1,500 work permits for Palestinians in Gaza so they could hold jobs in Israel. In Gaza, there's almost no work. They have a very, very high unemployment with, uh, rate, so Arabs want to come into Israel to work. So 1,500 work permits were uh, uh, given, which brings it to 15,000, the total number of such employment documents. But, interestingly enough, after Israel gave these additional 1,500 work permits for Palestinians to come to work in Israel, almost immediately, however, Israel suspended the 1,500 permits when four rockets were launched at Israel from Gaza on the Saturday night after uh, Biden left. No damage was caused by the projectiles, but that's interesting. 1,500 more Arabs who would have been able to work in Israel can no longer do so because their neighbors fired rockets into Israel. So firing rockets in Israel should uh, have a payment for doing so, and this is what the Israeli government did. And uh, so these are things that are under the radar during the Biden visit. The bottom line is that millions and millions of American dollars are being given to the Palestinians, not a word about changing the educational system so that they will become decent citizens of any kind of Palestinian state that would come into being. And as long as their education still uh, uh, teaches them to hate Jews and to hate Israel, uh, this money is essentially wasted. In our lifetime, there will not be a Palestinian state. In a related news item, nine European countries declared last week that they would continue backing the Palestinian NGOs, the non-government organizations that have been designated by Israel as terrorist organizations. In a joint statement, the foreign ministries of Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Sweden argue that Israel hasn't provided substantial information that would justify reviewing their policy toward the civil society groups in question. In other words, these uh, Palestinian NGOs are called civil society groups by the European countries. The um, they said that they said these European countries, EU members, uh, said they don't they have no evidence uh, that these uh, that these organizations are supporting terrorism. The 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 the, the accusi- accusations of terrorism or links to terrorist groups would be taken with the own utmost serious. They said. All is well and good if one's definition of the deadly phenomenon is open to interpretation. In other words, they interpret the European countries interpret differently what these terrorist groups than Israel does. The uh, interesting enough, 
the European Union put out a statement. They said uh, a free and strong civil society is, is indispensable for promoting democratic values and for the two-state solution. Uh, that is that is the grounds they gave for their continuing to fund these NGOs, which Israel has listed as terror terrorist organization or supporting terrorist organization. So this sentence alone, uh, calling this a free and strong civil society, is proof of Western Europe's willful blindness when it comes to all things dealing with the Palestinians. In the first place, there's nothing free about the Palestinian Authority, which is controlled by corrupt and evil leaders. Secondly, no democratic values are promoted by the school system or the news media or the media in general in Gaza and Ramallah, nor do the rulers of these places push for a two-state solution, particularly when they're talking to their own people and Arabic. They speak only of a Palestinian state and no Jewish state existing. So what they're saying is quite the opposite of what the European Union says they're saying. They educate children to hate Jews in Israel. They fill their classrooms and media outlets with propaganda, the purpose of which is to encourage the destruction of the Jewish state and to kill Jews, and they pay hard cash to those who carry out attacks against what they call the Zionist entity. So, by the way, the the blood libels spread by Palestinian officials are seen to be inspired by texts that Hitler and the Third Reich did. did. Less than two weeks ago, for instance, the Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority accused Israel, and I quote, he accused Israel of augmenting the pain of the families bereaved at the loss of their children by withholding the corpses of their children and using them in the laboratories of Israel universities and medical schools in flagrant violation of human rights, values, and scientific ethics. In other words, the official, uh, the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority accuses Israel of using the body of dead terrorists in medical experiments, which is, uh, therefore, they... uh, they, they said that they, the Palestinian Authority called on universities around the world to boycott these Israeli universities involved in the withholding and exploitation of the corpses of Palestinians killed by Israel army gunfire in order to put pressure on the Israeli occupation authorities to show respect for the dead. That's what the European Union should be doing. The uh, dozens of withheld corpses should be returned so their families can bid them farewell in a manner that befits them and respects their feeling. So this whole thing is a Palestinian hoax, one of many, and it's very interesting. Uh, 
uh, either either the Palestinian prime minister doesn't realize and doesn't care that one sector in Israel is especially sympathetic him and his fellow liars is academia. Indeed, Israeli campuses are rife with left-wing professors and students, both Jews and Arabs, producing papers and holding demonstrations against what they call the occupation. By the way, it's interesting, uh, last October, the Israeli uh, Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, made the announcement that he was listing six Palestinian NGOs uh, as terrorist organization. And the, the, what he said when he listed them was that all were active under the cover of civil society organizations, but in practice belong to and con- constitute an army of, the, of uh, one of the terrorist organizations organization, the main activity of which is the liberation of Palestine and destruction of Israel. That's what our defense minister said. And there was tremendous angry response uh, from all kind of uh, um, organization, the, uh, including the U.S. State Department, whose spokesman told reporters that Israel hadn't given American advance warning about these designations. And he said, we believe respect for human rights, fundamental freedoms, and a strong civil society are critically important to responsible and responsive governments. So this really has zero relevance to the current situation of Palestinian Authority, and certainly not relation to these NGOs, which simply covers for uh, supporting terrorism. By the way, that didn't stop a J Street from referring to the ban against these organizations as a repressive measure designed to outlaw and persecute important Palestinian human rights groups. These are not human rights groups. They're supportive of terrorism. And by the way, it's interesting to note also that uh, U.S. Representative uh, Omar who's a Democrat from Minnesota. She's one of the squad members, and she said there must be immediate consequences from the U.S. and the international community for this brazen act. The brazen act, of course, was cutting off the funding to organizations that support terrorism. The the New Israel Fund, Jewish Voice for Peace, Human Rights Watch, and a couple of other organizations chimed in to denounce the anti-terrorism measure. So uh, that's that's the status. You have all these NGOs that really covers for terrorism. Israel has stopped supporting them, and now we have all the left-wingers claiming how terrible this is. The... uh, the here in Israel, Gantz's decision was, of course, defended. Uh, for example, Professor Gerald Steinberg of one of the local think tanks said to make sense of the furious reaction to the Israeli government designation of these Palestinian NGOs as uh, terrorist fronts. 
it's necessary to understand the political and ideological context behind the non-governmental label. The network is an old and integral part of Palestinian strategy and for the last 20 years has received core funding from foreign governments, primarily Western Europe, in turn for information and uh, influence and under cover of civil society, these Palestinian NGOs cooperate with their European sponsors promoting uh, attacks against Israel and including attacks not only physically but calling Israel an apartheid and they are also engaged in Israel claiming Israel does war crimes so the, the Israeli designation that these are threats is indeed true the the Europeans and the Americans showed surprise uh, that they were not informed in advance but the decision should have been expected based on the earlier actions and public information. So when Israel cuts off funding to these phony NGOs who support terrorism, the Europeans and the left wing in America get upset. There's nothing we can do about that. These are the facts as long. As long as money is thrown in the wrong direction and given to bad actors, there's no chance that the Palestinians create a civil society of any sort, let alone a free and democratic one. These are the facts on the ground, despite despite what you hear from the left-wing organizations and from the European Union. Israel has to face the reality and act accordingly. It's for our safety and our future, regardless of what others say. The Biden administration, uh, since Biden's visit, has decided to resume financial aid to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine, called by its initials UNRWA. Even though the agency's school books continue to promote violence and to erase Israel's existence from their maps. This means that the U.S. taxpayer money, thanks to the Biden administration, is now once again going directly to an international agency that promotes and teaches messages of hate against Israel and denies Israel's right to exist. The resumption of the financial aid to UNRWA will also help to perpetuate the problem of the Palestinian refugees and their descendants, which already were talking four or five generations. Instead of helping these refugees to move on with their lives and see a better future for themselves and their children, This UN agency will continue to encourage them to remain in refugee camps by providing them with various services, including education and health care. Why would any Palestinian want to leave a refugee camp when he or she is receiving free education and free health care? The latest announcement by the American administration was made during Joe Biden's recent visit to Israel. 
the United States, he also visited the, uh, best, the West Bank. And if they put out a statement, it said the United States believes that Palestinian refugees deserve to live in dignity, to see their basic needs addressed, and have hope for the future. They, they had a continue, they continued a statement talking about money. President Biden, they said, will announce another $201 million for the UN Relief and Works Agency to uh, continue to give services to the Palestinians because uh, it's going to maintain regional stability, which is beneficial to the interests of the United States, according to this American statement. This contribution cements the United States status as the largest donor to this UN agency. His only job is to take care of the Palestinians. This brings the total United States assistance to this UN agency during the Biden administration to a staggering $618 million. They also say that these services will maintain regional stability, which is simply false. For the past seven decades, UNRWA, UNRWA, has been providing the refugee camps with all types of services, including food, medicine, health care, education, and housing. That's just about everything. This assistance certainly did not contribute to easing tensions or preventing violence in the refugee camps in particular, or to the region in general. On the contrary, most of the refugee camps have since become hotbeds for extremists and terrorist groups and individuals, especially in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Lebanon, and Syria. The refugee in these camps have produced countless terrorists who were responsible for the killing of thousands of Israelis and Arabs also. The camps in the West Bank and Gaza Strip played a major role in two violent uprisings that erupted against Israel in 1987 and 2000. The camps in Lebanon and Syria have similarly played a significant role in the civil wars that broke out in the mid-1970s in Lebanon and Syria in 2011. So the violence and tensions in these refugee camps took place while they were administered by the UN, which was providing the residents with what's called vital services. These so-called vital services did not stop the terrorists from carrying out attacks against Israel as well as other lab Arabs in Lebanon and Syria. Worse, the fact that the UN supplies the residents and the camps with all these services effectively exempts them from responsibility. They do not have to go to work to pay for their education, for their health care, and the food that they receive from the UN is free. A terrorist who wants to carry out an attack does not have to worry about the well-being and future of his family because the United Nations is always there to meet the daily needs. Now, th this welfare does not necessarily mean, of course, 
that older refugee camps are involved in terrorism and violence. Yet, it is safe to say that many of these camps embrace, encourage, and produce terrorists. Take, for example, there is a Janine refugee camp uh, in the uh, near, um, uh, right in the center of uh, what's called the West Bank. And uh, I, by the way, I've been there uh, many times when I when I still worked uh, served in the army, in um, in uh, what's called the Milouim, in my army service. I spent many times went through those camps, which is a rather unfriendly place. But we have to keep an eye on them. Now the the camp is managed by the UN, and in the past few decades, the camp has become the West West Bank's major center for terrorism, belonging to several different terrorist groups. These include Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade which is the armed wing of the ruling uh, Fatah faction, faction headed by Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. So the, uh, the UN, of course, doesn't have a mandate to take action against terrorists, nor have the forces or means to do so. But in the meantime, they're making life easy for the terrorists because they're supporting their families. Now, this does not mean that there's nothing that the agency could do to help ease tensions and discourage terrorism and violence. It could, for example, work to promote peace and coexistence between Israel and the Palestinians. It could promote tolerance and peace in the schools it manages in these refugee camps. The question is, is UNRWA, UNRWA, doing any of these things? Are they educating the Palestinian, Palestinian children toward peace? A study published earlier in July by an organization called the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance in School Education reported that children attending these UN schools are exposed to textbooks that include references to violence, martyrdom, overt anti-Semitism, holy war, that's jihad, rejection of the possibility of peace with Israel, and the complete omission of any historical Jewish presence in this region. The, and the UN reported, and I quote, despite the relatively small amount of available material, we found material that does not adhere to international standards and that encourages violence, jihad, martyrdom, anti-Semitism, hate, intolerance, with overtly politicized language that violates both UN values and the UNRWA's neutrality policy. The UNRWA produced material contains texts that glorify waging war and sacrificing one's life and blood to liberate what they call the motherland, which is described as the entirety of mandatory Palestine, which is all of Israel today. Such examples include grammar exercises that use the sentences discussing jihad warriors, sacrifice of blood, the liberation of Palestine from the occupying Jews, 
openly suggests violence to students and passages that exalt Palestinian militants whose daggers, as it written, land on the necks of the Israel enemy soldiers. Another example uses a poem to teach students that dying as martyr is a hobby and that peacemaking is undesir- undesirable and a sign of weakness. What I just said in the last minute, minute or two, is directly from a UN report, which ins- we, we um, actually, I'm sorry, it's, I made a mistake, not a, it's not a UN report, it's a, uh, it's an institute for monitoring peace and cultural tolerance. And um, what essentially saying is the United Nations is sponsoring education of Palestinian children that will never bring us an inch closer to peace. The, the study concluded that UN-produced material consistently ignores the existence of Israel, and it tells students to label cities and sites in Israel as proper as Palestinian names. In addition, social studies exercise implied that Israel is a colonial entity created by European colonialism to divide the Arab world. Israel is described solely in a negative manner as having malicious intentions toward Palestinians. Israel is accused of intentionally and maliciously mistreating Palestinian prisoners, who are really terrorists, that's why they're in prison, uh, and attempting to erase Palestinian heritage and identity. In some instances, Israel is accused of desecrating Jerusalem and desecrating the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So, instead of pressuring the UN to change its policies and stop the anti-Israel incitement in schools, what the Biden administration essentially is doing, they've decided to reward the agency for encouraging hate, violence, martyrdom, and so forth. In other words, they're going to actually prolong the suffering of the Palestinians in the camps. That's what the Biden administration is doing. So the bottom line is the money that the Biden administration is giving to the UN aims to preserve the status of the camps and ensure that the Palestinians living there stay where they are. By supporting this, The Biden administration is telling the refugees to remain patient in the camps because one day they will move to Israel as part of the so-called right of return. The right of return means flooding Israel with millions of Palestinian refugees and their descendants as a first step toward its destruction that is, the destruction of Israel, and replacing it with an Iranian-based Islamic State run by Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The Biden administration, in other words, has just sent a message to the Palestinians and all the Israel haters that it supports their efforts and shares their dream of, of... obliterating Israel. Those who fund school textbooks that glorify terrorists and deny Israel's right to exist are complicit in the global jihad against Israel. So, 
the president visited there and he came away smiling and saying that his his administration is going to continue to fund this to over six hundred million dollars the uh, those who fund school textbooks that glorify terrorists and deny Israel's right to exist are essentially complicit in the global jihad against Israel. And the bottom line is that instead of pressuring the UN to change its policies and stop the anti-Israel incitement in its schools, the Biden administration has decided to reward the agency for encouraging hate, violence, martyrdom, and delegitimization and demination of Israel and Jews. The Biden administration, as I concluded a moment ago, has just sent a message to the Palestinians and all the Israel haters that it supports their efforts and shares their dream of obliterating obliterating Israel. That is what the result of what Biden did, did in his smiling visit here to Israel. And it really is very sad because I don't know whether Biden himself knows the truth, knows what the how the Palestinian kids are being educated. But if you think about it for a minute, this education, which has been supported by the UN primarily with American money, has go has been going on at least since early 1990s which means that kids who started school in a Palestinian system in, in, let's say, 1995, we're talking almost 30 years ago, those kids are now adults and have their own children, and their own children today are being taught the same thing they were back in 1995, that Jews are to be killed and the state of Israel has no right to exist. So you have to ask yourself, what is the chance of making a peace agreement that has any value with anyone who has grown up through the Palestinian school system where anti-Semitism, anti anti-Israelism is encouraged, it's taught, the kids are brainwashed, and it's done primarily with UN money and with American money. So for some reason or other, this this particular thing doesn't seem to get the headlines that it should. Because as long as you educate the kids to hate, then it's going to take years, really years, until they can get, we get anybody on the Palestinian side who's willing to sit down and talk and make sense with Israel and make peace. Only if they change the education starting now will the next couple of generations be able to think about peace at all. This is the tragedy of what's happening to the Palestinians, what's happening in this area, and the American administration is continuing to support this terrible propaganda. So it's moving peace farther and farther away, not closer. It's very tragic. It's, it's really it's one of those things that's under the radar. You don't hear much about it. When it is reported, people don't pay attention to reports. It's all very sad, but it is the truth. Truth, and we have to face it. 
Thanks again for listening. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.